0: Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Brandon and Grace, for leading us in that time. Um, Hope you guys like the new stage design. It was very well thought out. Uh, But really, uh, if you guys have a chance, thank Marty. He's been working tirelessly up here um, pretty much all by himself. So um, I've been impressed to see him work, and it's been a joy to have him around, too. So if you guys see Marty, give him um, just your thanks. But um, thanks for being here this morning. We're going to jump into Mark, um, and let me pray just to get us started in the Word. Jesus, we thank you uh, for your goodness and your graciousness in our lives. Um, Just ask that you bring this Word to us, uh, illuminate your Word in our hearts, and let us not just stop here, but let us bring it out of these doors and these walls um, and into the communities that we live in. Uh, Thank you for your sacrifice for us. We love you. Amen. All right, anyone uh, a big war buff out there? I mean, not that we root for wars, like, yeah, wars, no. Like, uh, like a his- historical war buff. Um, I think... Civil wars are really fascinating. Uh, it was really sad and at the same time, interesting to be in Sierra Leone and just talk to people um, in a country that has been in a civil war for seemingly ever, um, but just people who have like, been through it their entire lives, almost from their childhood uh, to their adult lives. Um, here in the US, we generally only think back to our own civil war. We're kind of detached from the violence at this point. Um, Because it's our own country, we kind of assume that it's over, civil war is over, Uh, and another one here that, like newly starting, seems like almost impossible, right? Um, But this is interesting. There's a lot of numbers coming up, so I'll just warn you that. But um, since 1946, more than 250 civil wars have started around the world. 250 civil wars. I think uh, even a more shocking statement, uh, there's been a 50% increase in civil wars today than even just in 2001. A 50% increase, which is crazy. Uh, Division in our country and division around the world, it really leaves a huge impact. Uh, It literally creates bloodshed. It leaves kids without moms and dads. It completely corrupts countries for sometimes hundreds of years where they find it really hard to recover. And researchers have came up with three main things uh, that start a civil war. The first is greed. So there's something to go get. There's uh, money to go get or some kind of reward. Uh, there's grievance is number two, and that's some kind of like political or social injustice. There's something that the people need to rise up and, and go against some kind of injustice. And the third is opportunity. Uh, so that's like taking advantage of a group uh, in poverty or a, a group that's kind of outcast. So that's opportunity. Those three things start a civil war. But I don't think this just stops with government, and I think you guys would agree with that. Uh, It also happens a lot in religion. So religion alone around the world, there are 4,200 different kinds. Uh, That may seem like a lot, and you might be thinking, oh, good thing I'm here. Good thing I'm a Christian. I know the truth. Uh, We're not divided at all. But uh, just in Christianity, there are 33,089 different denominations in the world. Um, that's just according to the latest list. There's probably a new one popping up every day. Um, Even in Terre Haute, there's 125 different churches. Uh, That's actually one for every 468 people, a little factoid for you. Um, And unfortunately, I think the majority of these churches were not born out of multiplication or church planting. I think it was probably born out of division. Uh, So I know I threw threw a lot of statistics and numbers at you, but I say that to draw attention to just the massive amount of division we have around the entire world, in the church, in our government. We feel it everywhere. And some of this division is good, like uh, dividing yourself to kind of keep truth whole, to separate and preserve doctrine in the church. Those things are okay, but I think... Much of this, and history would probably tell you, much of this church division is born out of greed, grievance, or opportunity, those three things. So, in short, I think those can be summed up in something called spiritual pride. So today, uh, we're going to look at Mark nine thirty-eight through fifty, uh, and the disciples are going to experience the spiritual pride firsthand, and it's going to launch Jesus into one of the longest and most shocking moral arguments that he makes in like all of the gospels. Uh, so I'd like to write, invite Ruth Peelman up. Is she in here, Ruth? There she is. Hey, Ruth. <laughs> welcome. Um, And she's going to read Mark 9, 38 through 50. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat back in front of you. Um, And if you're physically capable, could you please stand for the word of God? Sorry, there's no steps up here. (laughs) John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in My name will be able to soon after speak of me for the one who... Sorry. You're fine. (laughs) We got it. Okay. Okay. Let me finish this. And whoever gives you a cup of, of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. You guys can have a seat. You can thank Brett for giving me the longest, uh, the longest passage we've ever done also in Mark. So, So let's recap kind of what has happened in the book of Mark so far, um, kind of recently that we've been talking about. So uh, Jesus took James and Peter and John took them up a mountain. They saw Jesus transfigure into this radiant being, um, something that no one had ever seen before. Uh, and then two dead guys show up, Moses and Elijah. They have a quick meeting with Jesus. Uh, Zoom wasn't a thing back then, so they had, they had to meet on the mountain. And Peter wanted to stay. That's the thing. He wanted to build these booths or these tents for them. Uh, but Jesus instead led them back down a mountain down the same mountain. And meeting them at the bottom of the mountain was this mob of people. Uh, and then the other nine disciples were down there as well. They were having a whole lot of trouble casting out this demon from a little boy. Jesus shows them all up. He casts out the demon and reminds the disciples that, hey, you, f- you completely forgot about me. You didn't pray. These things only come out through prayer and you totally forgot about me. Then Jesus again, for the second time in the gospel, predicts his death and suffering and the disciples are afraid to even ask him anymore like what does that mean they're they're terrified of that they're terrified of the answer and after all that witnessing all this stuff the disciples start arguing about who's the greatest like are you serious uh i usually cut these guys a little slack but like come on that seems crazy Uh, I'd imagine, actually, that Peter and James and John are feeling pretty darn good about themselves. Uh, They were in the inner circle, like, look, Mom, I'm in the inner circle, right? They witness uh, Jesus do something no one on earth had ever seen before when he transfigured, and they were, I'm sure, high and mighty about that. But John as mentioned by name in Mark, uh, forever in the record, forgot that Jesus had been teaching about this very problem. He'd been teaching about the religious people of the day, the Pharisees and the scribes, um, because John had the yeast of the Pharisees. So Mark eight fifteen reads, uh, Then he gave them strict orders, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So John completely forgot this demand, or this command from Jesus, and it's just one chapter back. So throughout, the, throughout Mark and really all of the Gospels say something about this, Jesus warns them about this leaven or about this yeast uh, that that is inside the Pharisees and is inside Herod. So uh, if you think about it, yeast is what makes bread grow, makes it expand. So your yeast or your leaven is what is in you. It makes you grow. It makes you expand. It's your innermost being, and and it's the embodiment of who you are and kind of why you make the decisions you make. Jesus was warning against spiritual hypocrisy. That's what the Pharisees and the scribes had. Uh, They were so worried that about what they were doing, they didn't consider why they were doing those things. They were so worried about following the law that they took so much pride in their own little religious group uh, that they no longer followed the Yahweh that actually led them out out of the desert. They started following themselves and their own commands. So fast forward just a little bit. Uh, and now John takes pride in being in the inner circle. So uh, verse 38 in Mark 9, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. I like how he said tried to because he probably didn't. But um, Jesus warned them, and he told them no one was the greatest, that they should be servants of all, just not very long ago. Uh, It seems like John actually did hear that, and he obeyed it. But now, instead of John saying, I'm the greatest, John is saying, hey, we're the greatest. Uh, Our 12 are the greatest that there ever was. We follow Jesus. We're the best. John isn't mad. Also, if you notice, John's not mad about this guy driving out demons wrong. He doesn't mention anything about his character. He doesn't mention anything about him blaspheming or or using God's name in vain. Uh, He's he's mad that he wasn't following us. That's what he keeps saying. He wasn't following us. So this is how Jesus responds, uh, verse 39 through 40. Don't stop him, said Jesus, because there is no one who will perform a a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us. So, Jesus doesn't focus on the act of, of what the guy's doing. He doesn't talk about the exorcist driving out this demon. He doesn't give the disciples a lesson about, hey, this is how you should drive out demons. This is the right way. What does he do? He taught the disciples a lesson about your spiritual pride. Uh, By the way, it's interesting because the the disciples just struggled with casting out a demon from the boy, and they see this guy not in their group do it with ease. So what I can conclude from this is Jesus rarely cares about the action that you're doing, but he always cares throughout the gospels, he always, always cares about the motivation behind what you do. So Matthew seven, twenty-two through twenty-three, this is what it says. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to him, being Jesus, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. So Jesus doesn't care about what you're doing, he cares about why you're doing and if you're doing it in his name. So John was so concerned that this man wasn't a part of their little misfit tribe of disciples uh, that they attempted to stop him completely. And this is spiritual pride. And the big problem with spiritual pride is that we can easily hold other believers back. So easily, almost without even trying. Uh, Now, Jesus isn't saying here that there's no room for correction and and rebuke. That would be completely opposite to what he teaches. That would be opposite to what Scripture teaches. There's always room for correction and rebuke if you do it based on the Scripture. But if you skip down to verse 42, uh, it says, "...but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea." So little ones here, I don't think it's not referring to children specifically. Uh, It kind of seems like that at first, but it definitely includes them. Uh, I think what Jesus is emphasizing here is new believers, learning believers, people who are new in their faith, they are upcoming in their faith, and they're really, really excited about following Jesus. So from the context, Jesus is actually, when he says little ones, he's referring to the guy driving out demons. He's a little one. He's learning. He's a new believer. And this man wasn't in the inner circle than John was. So uh, John stopped him, uh, and it probably caused him to reconsider his faith altogether. It caused him to reconsider his life um, because John was a follower of Jesus, and he came to stop him. He probably really derailed what he was trying to do. And Jesus has real reservation about this behavior. Um, And he even goes so far as to say that death is a better alternative than stopping that little one. Death by drowning is a better alternative. So God looks down, We we can clearly see, God looks down on people thwarting other believers, but we do it so often in the name of righteousness. I don't know why we're so quick to bring a critical eye to others who are clearly like on our same team. They're on the same team as us and we're, the first thing we do is we're critical of them. How many times in your life has someone told you that'll never work, right? That'll never ever work no matter what you do. Uh, I think it's most uh, visible when we talk to newly married couples. Um, we say, well, I'll just wait till the honeymoon phase is over. Then you'll, be, then you'll be miserable, right? Wait until you have kids. Wait until you have three kids like me. Then you'll be miserable and hate life, just like I do. What a discouragement, right? Maybe you haven't said those exact words, but I know you thought it. So uh, why is our first instinct to root for failure and so we can just feel better about ourselves? Uh, I think the answer is what jesus taught it's the wrong leaven we have the wrong the wrong yeast inside of us we're fostering the wrong yeast so spiritual pride really when we foster that wrong yeast it becomes the depth of our inner being and it just grows inside of us uh, it's, it's, it's cool because this situation that John is in, it's happened before. Uh, so if you look back to the book of Numbers, I'm going to read you a little story. So Numbers 11, 26 through 30. Two men had remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other Medad. The Spirit rested on them. They were among those listed, but they had not gone out to the tent, and they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and reported to Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, assistant to Moses since his youth, responded, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But Moses asked him, are you jealous on my account? If only all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would place his spirit on them. Then Moses returned to the camp along with the elders of Israel. Again, like John, Joshua, Moses' assistant, isn't concerned about how they were prophesying, what they were representing, what they were saying. He was upset that they weren't in their little circle, and Moses rebukes him. Joshua and John both took pride in their own group, and this is a problem with all the Israelites in the New Testament, especially the scribes and the Pharisees. They thought because they belonged to this group that they were connected with God. They thought if they followed the Torah to a T, then God would be the end point. But... Doing that, they fundamentally missed the the crux of the entire Torah and everything that it stood for, and they thought that God would just automatically bestow His grace on them. They were so worried about all the details that they missed the plot. Does that sound familiar? I think it does in, in, our, in our context in the 21st century. I think we take stock in family. We take stock in our friend group. Um, we, we have our age group. We have our church. We take pride in our church family. Sometimes we take pride in our, even our Baptist denomination. Um, none of those things are not important. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying any of those aren't important. Your family is important and your church is important. But... Um, it's not the end-all be-all. And this is something I've struggled with uh, ever since I went to Germany. I've been to Wittenberg twice, and I've learned about the Reformation of Luther and what happened when the, the Protestants and the Catholics divided. And in some ways, I almost worshiped that moment in time. Um, I, I was like, what? thank goodness, thank God this happened, because otherwise Christianity would be dead. What, a, what an arrogant and prideful statement that I thought that and this is kind of the same reason we're taking Baptists out of our name as a church here in January. It's not because we don't like their theology or their doctrine or the Baptist people in general or any of their history um, or really because we disagree with them. I think nothing will theologically change in our church at all uh, in, in the coming years. But we have a lot to learn from other denominations that I think the Baptists have missed. The only thing that will change uh, is who we identify with. We don't belong to the Baptists. We're not Reformed. We are, we are not the church of this or that or whatever. We aren't a statistic. We're not a demographic. If you read verse 41 in our in our text. And whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. We belong to Christ only. That's it. That's what we belong to. It's not a group it's not a denomination, it's Christ. And that's why we must get rid of the hierarchy that we've created in our church and in in the American church in general. So notice what Jesus said will be rewarded. This is the Seth translation from the Greek, a simple glass of water given. That's what will be rewarded. Uh, There's no room, according to that, for hierarchy in the kingdom of God. There's just no room for it. Uh, And this follows the model of Jesus. We have a really bad idea of being great in the Western culture. Uh, We have corporations run by amazing leaders. They're in the corner office. They've earned it, uh, which is fine. We have billionaires going into space literally to just get away from us poor people. They're literally building rockets and going into outer space. Um, Men and women have, uh, uh, have taken over women and quenched their voice. In the name of authority. We see leaders as kind of insulated from any kind of pointless, mundane work because they know better and they are better. But the Bible really paints a different picture. Leaders are servants first. That's the first thing they are. There's no up or down. They're servants. Jesus washed feet. The org charts that we've created in our heads about what God can do, or what we can do for God are really laughable to him. And I think this problem comes in two different forms. There's one is thinking we're useless to God. And number two is getting jealous about what others are doing for God. So let me explain. I think we feel uh, often, a lot of times, uh, unqualified for any serious ministry opportunity. Something comes our way, it's it's our first reaction to kind of push it away, and I'm not qualified for that. We're afraid of sharing the gospel because we might be wrong. Uh, We need the church to bless some kind of gathering or event before we embark on it or do it. And while the church will gladly support you in any way with those, the church doesn't have any authority apart from Christ. It just doesn't. You and I independently have the power and authority of Jesus at our disposal. We have the power of Christ at our disposal and the entire community of church behind us. That's what makes the church church. A thing. That's what that's the power of the church. We have a community of believers behind us with the authority of Christ. So don't let timidity stop you. Uh, there's no hierarchy, there's no permission that you need. We just need to really get out there and get to work. Uh, on the other hand, we look at people stepping out in faith um, and we really let our hearts turn to jealousy. We're jealous that they can step out. Well, why am I here? And they they're there. Why is God using them? Uh, One of my favorite bits is from Tim Hawkins. He's a Christian comedian. Um, He's really jealous of other people's testimony because his isn't that great because he grew up in church or whatever. He's like, man, I wish I was addicted to crack. That's what he says. And it's kind of a funny way to say it, like being jealous of other people's testimony. But if comedy wasn't a little bit true, it wouldn't be funny. We get jealous of how God uses others, and it's just like Joshua and John. It's exactly the same thing. We say, I want to go on that mission trip. That would be cool. Or I, I, want, to, I want God to have me reach that person. I would be a lot better than that, than that other guy at it. Or man, I wish I knew that much Bible trivia. I wish I knew that much scripture. I'm going to do it to match them, or I'm going to do it to show everyone how much I know about the Bible. All these things are great, um, but what they aren't, is they, they don't have a base of Jesus. They're rooted in selfishness and and your own self trying to get to God on your own. And I think this is the greatest scheme of the devil. Uh, he takes something ordained by God, something good—mission trips, Bible reading, um, knowing about your Bible, praying—and he makes it bad. He lies about it. So John Mark Comber in his book "Live No Lies." And this is what he writes: Our strongest desires are not actually our deepest desires. Let me say that again. Our strongest desires are not actually our deepest desires. Um, So, our strongest desires are often rooted in our flesh. There are animal side, there are sinful desires, there are natural instinct. On the other hand, our deepest desires are in our spirit. It's what we need to be, uh, it's what we need to have to be fulfilled as we are created in the image of God. That's what we need in our soul. So, if we're not careful, our strongest desire becomes spiritual pride and jealousy, which, if you don't contain it, Jesus says will hold back other disciples. It will hold back little ones. Uh, Our deepest desire, on the other hand, which should be our strongest desire, is holy communion with Jesus. That's our deepest. That's what we need in our spirit. Um, So that's why we have to let go, and we need to realize that we are the little ones. We are little ones, all of us in this room. So Jesus corrects John here, and he goes from exalting the exorcist to warning about hierarchy to finally just imploring the disciples to care for their own souls and their own selves and guard themselves from sin. So if we read verses 43 through 48, And if your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed and have two hands and go to hell in the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. So, obviously, your hands and feet and your eyes are very, very important to, like, normal living. They're very important to your body, right? Um, But Jesus says, if the devil grabs your arm, it's better to cut it off than have him drag you to hell. The devil's lies just constantly get easier and easier to accept. Uh, If you use your hand to move away from God, that's one step closer to the devil and his schemes, if soon, pretty soon, the devil will just take your entire arm, so he starts with the hand, he goes to your arm, he'll go to the torso. It gets so hard to give up things when you let the devil infect your entire body. It's so hard to get rid of those things rather than first just cutting off your hand. So one rabbit hole I'll quickly do, go down um, this morning is the inseparable nature of body, soul, heart, and mind. So in, in American Christianity, we think that uh, our bodies are just kind of vehicles for our soul. They're broken, um, which is partially true. But eventually when we die, God will suck out our spirit. He'll shoot it off into heaven, and that'll be that. And maybe that's how I'll do it. I don't know. I'm not him. Um, but I think it's clear from this scripture that our physical bodies can't be detached from our souls. The flesh, when the the biblical writers say flesh, it's not literally the meat on our bones. The flesh is just like the world. It's anything God did not create. It's sin in short. Um, So God created us in his image, including his physical body. Dallas Willard puts it this way, which I love. um, It can't be any other way. If salvation is to affect our lives, it can only do so by affecting our bodies. If we are to participate in the reign of God, it can only be by our actions, and our actions are physical. We live only in the, process, uh, the processes of our body. To withhold our bodies from religion is to exclude religion from our lives. Our life is a bodily life, even though that life is one that can be fulfilled solely in the union with God. So our physical bodies are extremely important, although they are infected by sin, So God didn't mess up when he made our human bodies. Otherwise, Jesus, the man, would not have been perfect. But this entire metaphor leads into our own walk with Jesus, and it doesn't only affect your own life. It affects other disciples as well. It affects the little ones. It's impossible to live in a vacuum without any repercussions to anyone else. What you do will affect other people. And our spiritual pride would say we're the best person to serve Jesus, but we have to see ourselves as little ones first. We all believe we would give our lives for Jesus. I think we would all agree in this room. When, when push comes to shove, gun to my head, of course, I will never deny, deny Jesus ever with my life. And that's what Peter thought too. So in our daily lives... We can't even give up the simplest things. So we say we would give our lives to Jesus, but we don't show it in our daily lives. So we have uh, our money that we won't give up. We have our time that we won't give up, our schedule, our kids, our hobbies, even addictions. We we cling to them so tightly that God literally has to pry them from our cold, dead hands. And we must learn how to let go uh, or else Jesus will really never use us in the capacity that he created us for. So, verse forty-eight here, uh, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched, this is kind of a confusing uh, verse to pull. Uh, it's the last verse uh, in Isaiah sixty-six twenty-four. Mark is quoting that from Isaiah sixty-six. It's the last verse in the book of in the book of Isaiah. Um, it's an allusion to the faithful Yahweh followers, so the, the Israelites um, who are walking past all the people that have rebelled against God. They're all dead, uh, and they're laying on the ground, and they're being. Uh, eaten by worms on the inside, and they're being burned by fire on the outside, internal and external torment. Uh, so, the idea is that there are so many bodies, there are so many people that have rebelled against God that the worms will never be able to consume all the bodies. Uh, kind of gross, but thus their worm will never die. So, this is the easy route in life. It's easy to do that. It says, uh, Jesus says, Narrow is the gate. That leads to eternity. But um, although that's the easy route in life, it's a terrible path in eternity, if you look at it in the scope of eternity. So following Jesus really does demand, it doesn't just suggest it, it demands a cutting off of spiritual pride and anything that connects us with sin, including our hands and our eyes and our feet. We have to give that up. We have to have the faith of a little one, and we need to constantly strive to be in the presence of Jesus. So, the question is, how can we get rid of this pride? It's not something we just think about. It's something we have to do. It's something we have to show in our real lives, in our daily lives. Um, and I think there's two really practical things we can do. The first is just find the strength in others first. So, we always, we always use the critical eye first, but what we need to do is find the strength in others first. Um, Let encouragement be your default. The two best people I've ever seen do this are my in-laws, Doug and Lori. Uh, They're by far the most encouraging people I've ever met, and I I really don't think it's just a fluke. Uh, I think they have years of intentional sowing of good yeast and suppressing bad yeast, and it's paid off. You can see it in their lives. So before you're critical of someone else, my suggestion, and this is just off the, uh, what I'm saying, is to Take five things they're doing right before you take one critical thing that they're doing wrong. Uh, I bet you can. And even if, if you make one of those encouragements something that they're better at than you, that is humbling. If you find something that they're better at than you, that is extremely humbling. Um, and this practice is great because it sows peace and unity and gets rid of division within the church. So Romans twelve eighteen says, If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. James three sixteen through 18 says, For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy, and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate it. Peace takes intentional cultivation and sowing, just like yeast in your own heart. Uh, so the second really practical thing that we need to understand is that you are needed right where you are right now. There is no uh, a path that you need to go down before you are now qualified to do X, Y, Z. This is for everyone in the room. If you just got baptized yesterday or if you got baptized 85 years ago, Jesus is very clear. Uh, you can do something for Jesus right now. So don't feel like you don't have enough experience. Don't feel like there's someone else better. Uh, just get out of your comfort zone and get after it. We need to tell people about Jesus. Who cares, if they don't ask a, who cares if they ask a question that you might not know? It's okay. We need to pray to God like we're little children. Pray to God like a child. Who cares if someone else does it differently? Or if you don't think you know how, just do it just doing it is better than doing nothing. Let your mind wander and just ponder God and His majesty in your prayer. Volunteer, start a group, talk about the Bible with others, confess your struggles. These are community. God doesn't need you to pass a theology test, believe me. He just needs you to quench your spiritual pride, and He needs you to pass over a glass of water. That's it. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your son. Um, we thank Jesus uh, for your resurrection and, you, and your death on the cross. and. Um, we just ask that you help us to quench our spiritual pride and only understand that we belong to you, uh, Christ, and that, is, and that is it. And uh, help us take this word out of this place and help us encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ so that we might be a full community and, and that we can sow peace and unity with one another. Um, Jesus, we love you so much. Amen.